on page 1013, uh, James chapter 5. So we, we are coming to the end of our study. We only have two more weeks left in this book of James after this week. And I, I know that many of you have felt exactly what I've been feeling as we've been going through this book. I know you're feeling it because you've actually shared it with me. Um, that, that week after week, uh, what we are experiencing and what we can feel sometimes as we go through this book can be summarized with one word, and that word is conviction. <laughs> uh, I've felt it, and I know many of you have felt it. As we've been going through this book, James just keeps poking at the different things that our heart is clinging to, the different things that we hold dear, right? I mean, just last week, he talked about how we are not to judge others and how we don't we shouldn't be worried about tomorrow or thinking that we can control tomorrow. And before last week, previously, he talked about our tongues and the way that we use our words and, and the pursuit of comfort and ease. And he keeps poking and he keeps prodding at these things that we hold dear. And week after week after week, I feel myself realizing that I have fallen short. And I'm sure that some of you have felt that as well, that we are falling short of what God has called us to. And and while it's not pleasurable to have these things exposed to us, right, to have our idols, to have our deepest desires, to be laid bare before us, what, you know, none of us would ask to do that. It's actually quite good. Now, it's not good because we're gluttons for punishment, far from it. No, it is good because when we have our needs revealed to us, when we have our hearts exposed in this way, what it does is what it should do is drive us to Jesus, it should drive us back again to his grace because ultimately that is what we are all in need of. That's what I need. I need more of Christ's grace. That's what you need. We need God's love and his grace. That's what our neighbors need. We need his grace and his mercy. Whether you are new to the faith or whether you have walked with Jesus longer than I have been alive, what we are all in need of is grace. We need more of God's love. And that's what James has been showing us again and again and again. James is reminding us of our need. And I want us to be reminded of that in the very beginning, before we ever even read this passage. I want this to be in our minds of our need of God's grace, because guess what? <laughs> James is going to poke us again. He's going to expose us again. And this time he's going to do around the idea of money, around the idol of money. And James has very firm words for us about our money and about our wealth. Words that are so firm that there are some theologians, some commentators who think that James is addressing this primarily to non-believers, to those outside of the church, because in their mind, they cannot foresee how James could speak so firmly to the people of God. I'm not one of those uh, scholars, I'm not a scholar, but I'm not one of those theologians, I'm not one of those who think that James is addressing this to the people outside of the church. No, I think he's talking to the church, and I think he's talking to us because, one, as we're going to read the passage, there's nothing that indicates that the audience has changed. Two, when would the non-Christians, those outside of God's people, ever hear these words? And then three, most importantly, James understands us. He understands how easily our hearts can cling to wealth, how easily our souls can find our satisfaction in money, how so easily the people within the church, how me and you 
can look to our wealth for security. And so I don't think this is for the people outside of God's people. I think this is for you and for me. And so James is going to poke again. Let's go ahead and read James 5, beginning in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage in these um, firm words for your people, I acknowledge that th this is not comfortable, that this, is not, this does not make us feel good, and yet this is exactly what we need. We need you to speak your truth to us. We are in need of your grace and your mercy. We are in need of you showing us what it means to live as your people. And so we ask right now that you would be gracious again, that you would help me because I am in need of your help so that my words would be your words, that you would help us all so that we would be attentive to your word and that in all our ways, through my words and our hearts, that, that in all of our ways we would please you for you are our God and our King. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I want you to think for a moment about earlier in the service when we were confessing our sin. Not the corporate confession, but the silent confession. When it's just you and the Lord. When you're just saying those things that, that maybe only you and the Lord know about, those sins that you struggle with. Okay, I want you to think about those sins that you confessed. You got them? I imagine that it's not very hard for you to remember because if you're like me, we're confessing similar sins week after week after week, similar struggles that we're continuing to wrestle with. And so probably many of us confess things like lustful thoughts and, and unbridled tongues, and we, we confess maybe our lack of confession, right? Maybe some of us do that, that we're not as aware of our sin as we ought to be, and, and we're confessing, you know, those thoughts that we have in our minds about others, and maybe we're confessing jealousy, we're confessing all sorts of things, right? And, and probably some of the things I just mentioned are what goes through your mind week after week after week. But I wonder how many of us confessed greed. I wonder how many of us, I don't need a show of hands, <laughs> but I wonder how many of us prayed, Lord, forgive my greedy heart. Now, I imagine that very few of us, maybe none of us actually confess that this morning. Recently, I was reading, um, I was reading uh, an article, a chapter of a book written by a pastor, and he said in all of his many years of pastoral ministry, he has never had someone come to him and confess that they struggle with greed. And so I started to think about that. I started thinking about it. Surely that can't be the case, right? I mean, I've been in the pastorate for 10 years, a little over 10 years, two different places, hundreds of different people, right? Had lots of different conversations about sin, you know, sat in, sitting in my office, you know, drinking coffee, people telling me, sharing me, asking me to pray. And I started thinking, and you know what? 
No one has ever said, Penny, I struggle with greed. It's amazing, isn't it? I started to think about that, and I thought, well, maybe this pastor and me, maybe we're just an anomaly. Maybe our people, you know, who, who are in our churches, they just don't struggle with this. Money's not an issue for them. And so I emailed some of my friends, eight other pastors. I reached out to them, and I said, you know, how many of you have had someone reach out to you and say they struggle with greed? So eight other pastors, all of us at least nine years of pastoral ministry, many of us moving closer to 20 years. So a collective nearly 100 years of pastoral ministry experience. And you know how often we have all heard someone express their sin of greed? Once. One time. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, think about that. Sinful thoughts addictions, right, um, um, uh, broken relationships, relational discord, all of these things have infiltrated our hearts. But, but those of us who live in one of the most wealthy, one of the most affluent times in, history, in the history of the world, we have somehow been able to keep greed at bay. Does that sound right? No, I don't think so. And so I thought about that, and I started to wonder, like, why don't we see this as a problem? Why don't we see this as a prevalent sin in our lives? And I started to think, well, you know what, maybe, maybe it's that, that it's not that no one struggles with this, but that we've actually be, become unconscious of our struggle with it. The writer David Foster Wallace, who's not a believer, a postmodern writer, in a very famous uh, commencement address that he gave at Kenyon College that was later published under the title, This is Water. In this famous Kenyon College commencement address, he says that we all worship something, and we are going to worship something. Whether you are religious or not, you will worship something. And then he lists off all the things you could worship. He talks about career and family, and he talks about uh, our intellect, and, and he talks about money. And he says it's, it's not a question of whether you'll worship, it's what you will worship. And then when he talks about these things that we're going to worship, he says this. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They're the kind of worship you just gently slip into day after day. And the world will not discourage you. It's pretty insightful, isn't it? And he is absolutely right. These things, like the love of money, they slowly grab onto our hearts, and they do so so ever subtly that we don't even realize that it is taking a grip on our heart until we have given our hearts fully over to it. You see, the reason why I think that no one thinks that they're greedy is because we've unconsciously clung to our wealth and to our possessions, and we have done it with the loud cheers and encouragement of the world. And yet James is telling us something very, very different. James is telling us something different. He tells us that when it comes to our wealth, we actually need to guard our hearts. We need, our we need to guard our hearts, and, and we need to ignore the encouragement of the world, and we need to see wealth for what it is, that, that there is possible blessing, that there is great opportunity that can come with wealth, but, but also there is great danger. There's the perils of greed. That's what James tells us about, right? And I don't know if you noticed it, but these six verses, it is all negative. <laughs> Did y'all notice that? I mean, it is all bad. 
because he wants us to see the perils of greed. Look at verse 4. It begins, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they are crying out against you. One of the ways that greed manifests itself is by robbing, defrauding another. You see the picture that he's giving us. There's the wealthy, and they have hired the worker, the laborer, in their midst. And they promise to pay them a salary. And once the day comes, when the time comes for this honest work to be rewarded, to the salary to come, the payment to come, what does the wealthy do? They hold back their money. They hold back their money, and what they're doing is stealing. They are robbing the laborer, and they are doing so for their own individual benefit. And James is condemning this practice, but, but this isn't just condemned by James. This is condemned by the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, God's word says to us, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So you hear what Moses is telling us? That if we employ someone in our midst to do a work, to do a job, that when it comes time to pay them, whether they are part of the people of God or not, whether they are an immigrant or a sojourner, whether they are from here or from a far off place, that we are to pay them what they have earned. That's what he's telling us. To not do that is to steal and is to rob but it's more than that because in this culture it would have meant that we may actually be putting their life in danger because the the laborer in this day needed a daily wage in order to live this is why in verse 6 james says of the wealthy you have condemned and murdered you see what they are doing what they're doing is perpetrating a great injustice against others for their own benefit. And James tells us that this is not ignored by the Lord. Look at verse 4. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now that title, the Lord of hosts, it's a title that is often used in the Old Testament as a way of associating God as the leader of his heavenly hosts, of his heavenly army. And God comes leading his heavenly hosts, and he brings opposition against those who oppose him. And James is using that title. He's now saying that the Lord who judges, the Lord who opposes injustice, he has heard and seen what has been done. And he will not ignore it. Look at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl. What are those miseries? Well, those who perpetrate injustice, financial, unjust financial practices, that, that they will face the judgment of God. Now, I imagine for most of us, this actually isn't the danger that we're confronted with when it comes to wealth. I know most of you, and I would never think of you as a robber. <laughs> right? This isn't where I think that most of us struggle with wealth and with money and with greed. No, it's not with fraud, but it's actually with hoarding. Look, that's what the words that James has for us in verses 2 and 3. 
He says, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. I wonder if something in there stood out to you. Look at it again very carefully. Is there something strange in those couple of verses? Something that seems a little off? If you look very closely, you'll, you'll notice that, that James says that our gold and our silver have corroded. Okay, what's the problem with that? Gold and silver don't corrode. So what's going on with James? Like, was this a typo? You know, like, the, we just made a mistake in the translation. Is, is it that James didn't understand the principles of corrosion, right? I mean, I don't, right? So maybe James didn't, right? No, no that's not what's going on. James knew exactly what he was saying. You see, when we take this language about corrosion and we take it with the descriptions that come before it, like rotted and moth-eaten, what we see is that James is telling us that not even the most precious of wealth, not even the greatest of wealth, not even the most precious and pure things of metal, not even they will last. And we know this, right? We know this about our clothes. We know that our clothes will break down, right? They'll fray and they'll end up in the trash or we'll tear them up and they'll become dust rags or, or they'll end up at goodwill and in 50 years some teenager will buy them as vintage and, and wear them in completely ironic ways and make fun of our clothing like we do with 70s clothes, right? I mean, th there's good reason to do that, right? But we know that our, our clothes, they're not going to last. And we know our homes are going to crumble and that our cars are going to end up in scrap. We know this. But what James is telling us is that not even, not even the most precious of things, that, that though our clothes may fade and fray and though our cars may end up in the trash, that even gold and silver, the most precious of resources, even they do not have eternal benefit to your soul. They do not have lasting value in terms of your soul, that even they will fade away. James says, you are storing up treasures. You have laid treasure in these last days, treasure that will not last. These last days are today, by the way. James said, in these last days, then and today, what are we storing up? In fact, what he tells us is not just that they don't bring any lasting or eternal benefit to our souls, but what we do with our wealth can actually bring damage to our souls. Look at what he says in verse 3, the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Here again, he's describing judgment. And he's telling us that the accumulation of wealth and the hoarding of it for one's own self-indulgence that the world, in the world's eyes, that might bring commendation, but to God's eyes, it brings con condemnation. And this is the very thing that Jesus warned us about in Matthew 6, isn't it? In the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also, right? You can't serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you will... Hate the one and you will love the other. You cannot serve them both. And then what does he say? You cannot serve both God and money. It's interesting. That's where he ends, isn't it? You can't serve two masters like God and money. That's the warning that Jesus is giving us. And so we have to ask ourselves, where is our heart? 
What do our actions say about what we treasure? What do you, what does our action say about our heart posture towards money? Every one of us needs to ask that question. Whether you are in the the 1% or the 99%, we all need to ask that question because here's the thing. This is a subtle, subtle taking grip of our hearts because we can so easily, easily justify the thinking about money, right? I mean, I'll admit, I do this. Right? It's so easy to just think if, if I only had 10 more thousand, 20 more. Man, if, if, if I inherited 150,000, think of all the good things I would do, right? I would give tithe to the church and I would probably help pay down the building fund and, and I would give money to my friends who are church planting and then I would save some for me and Ken, I would go on a great trip and, you know, but I did all those other things first, right? But I'm still thinking about money, aren't I? Still daydreaming about? Like, where do we go in our heads when we're daydreaming? Do we think about those things? Where's our hearts? Where are they? This is a pretty ugly picture that James is painting for us. And, and yet, James is giving us a warning. Don't, don't just feel this as like James, James is slapping you on the back of the hand or he's sitting there wagging his finger at you. No, his warning is coming to us because he has concern for the state of our hearts. He has concern for your souls. Let us see James like a man standing beside a washed out bridge. Standing by a washed out bridge, warning us of the dangers of he- ahead. And when we hear this warning, what do you do in your car? You don't simply stop and watch and hope that the river doesn't keep creeping towards you. You turn around and you drive away from the danger and you find a safer route, right? And that's what we are to do. We don't simply just stop thinking about money. That's not how we deal with greed. We deal with greed by pursuing generosity. You see, the problem ultimately isn't with wealth itself. You see, we can start to think about that. Like, we can start to think, well, if, well, if the greedy may, you know, the wealthy have this danger, well, then we all just need to take vows of poverty, Right? And we need to just give everything away and just kind of live, you know, hand to mouth. And, but, but the problem ultimately isn't with wealth itself because throughout Scripture, we see God blessing his people with wealth, some of his people, right? I mean, Abraham and David and Job in the Old Testament, right? In the New Testament, there's Joseph of Arimathea, who was an early follower of Jesus. The problem isn't with wealth itself. The problem is with the way we use our wealth. And as Christians, we are to approach wealth very distinctly from the world. I heard a pastor say, and I can't remember who said it. I wish I could claim it for myself. But he once said that a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't that we think about different things, but that we think differently about those things. Do you hear that? A difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't that we think about different things, but we think differently about those things. And so the Christian response isn't just to go, well, who cares about money? I'll just never think about, no, but, but instead we think differently about it from the way the world does. The world's perspective is to pursue wealth in order to bless ourselves, right? I mean, think about why is it that you would rob? Why is it that you would hoard? Why is it that you would defraud? Well, it's about me, 
right? It's about my wealth. It's about my comfort, my enjoyment. It is about my singular benefit. But the Christian response to wealth is that this is a gift. We don't resist greed by not thinking about money. We think about it differently. What has been given to us has been given to us by God. Yes, we worked hard. Yes, we labored. Yes, we put in the time. Yes, we had the ingenuity. Yes, but, but even those things came from God. We see everything as a gift and to be used in the service of God and others. All that I have is ultimately his, and I am but a steward. I'm a but a, I am but a steward. A steward who is to use what God has given in order to bless And in order to do this, we have to pursue the pleasure of generosity. I had this demonstrated for me uh, shortly after I graduated from college. So uh, most of you know I'm from Canada. And so when I graduated from college, in order for me to work in America, I had to have a, uh, a visa, right, a work visa. I was here on a student visa that expired the day I graduated. So there was no wiggle room. So months before I graduated, I started filling out the paperwork, and I started to get it ready, and I sent it in. And through no fault of my own, there was a little snafu in the application process. The person who had to sign off on it and stamp it and had to do the sending in, well, he got delayed, and he got busy with other things, and and he sent it off a little bit late. And so graduation came, and Penny didn't have a visa. I didn't have a work permit. So I wasn't allowed to work here in this country. But here's the, here's the weird thing. Here was the, the, the little bit of uh, difficulty that ensued is that I also wasn't allowed to leave. <laughs> because if I left and, say, went back to Canada and got a job and worked for a little bit while I was home, you know, to save some money before I came back, well, it made my visa void. And I would have to reapply while I was in Canada and wait for it to come in before I could reenter the country. And so I was in this weird limbo stage. I couldn't work, but I couldn't leave. And so I had to live off of the little bit of money I saved working part-time in the admissions office at Lander University. And I have to tell you, that's not a high-paying job. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember a few months after I graduated, I was hanging out with my friend Martin, who worked at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He was doing web design for them, and we were just spending the weekend together, hanging out, enjoying one another, you know, talking and these sorts of things. And I get ready to drive back to my house in Greenwood, And before I can get in the car, Martin goes, hold on, Penny, I want to say something to you. He pulls out his pocket Bible, and he opens it to Acts 2, and he reads this passage. He said, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And he closed his Bible, and he stuck it back in his pocket, and he looked at me, and he said, Penny, the Lord has blessed me, and he has provided for me. I know that in this time you don't have a job and you're living off of a very small savings. He had no idea how small. He said, but I want to use what God has given me to be a blessing to you. And he reached back into his pocket and he pulled out a $50 bill and he stuck it in my hand. Do you hear what he said? What God has given me, I want to share with you. And And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, $50 isn't very much money. Put a little bit of gas in my tank. Provide a little bit of groceries for a a couple weeks. It's a lot of rice. (laughs) It's not a lot of money, but it was a blessing to me. 
Because Martin was giving, not coerced, not forced to. He was giving out of the joy of giving. He was giving out of the joy of, of, of this opportunity to bless. He saw his wealth as an opportunity to bless me. And in doing this, he actually experienced blessing himself. Like he gave it to me, not begrudgingly, not with this sorrowful face, like what, am I, what could I have done with that $50? No, he, he gave it with joy. He used what he had to bring blessing to another. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus has done. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes that, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, do you hear what Christ has done for you? What he has done for me? That Jesus who was rich, he was in heaven right, in the place of glory, and yet he became poor. He was born to a carpenter and to some no-name girl in a tiny forgotten city, and he died a criminal's death, and he did so so that by his poverty we might become rich. Friends, this is the reason why we resist greed and pursue generosity. It's not because of the fear of the consequences of greed. That, that may motivate us for a time, but but ultimately, we do it because we are recipients of a generosity far greater than we could have ever imagined. You see, friends, we will only be free from the allure of greed and wealth when we have been captured by the beauty of our Lord's generosity. And he has been generous. He gave his very self. And so what does this mean for you? What does this look like for me? I don't know all the specifics. I don't know all the specific ways that it, it means that we are to be generous. It might mean that we don't indulge in a trip and we use that fund, those funds to help someone else. It might mean that we don't fill our closets with new clothes, but we use that money to clothe someone else. It might mean that it's, it's not even writing a check. It might be being generous with our time and our space and our home and our possessions. I don't know all the individual ways it might mean for you, but, but think about this corporately. Think about this as a church. We are sitting and standing in this beautiful building, right? The, the lights are on, uh, the, the sound system's working, the heat definitely was working this morning, <laughs> right? I mean, think about that. We have this beautiful space out there where, where we receive and greet one another with coffee. We can sit and have conversation and, and our children have clean and safe rooms to learn about God's grace and his mercy. I mean, think about all that we have right now that we are experiencing. And, and this has been provided by the generosity of, of many of y'all and the generosity of our Lord to work within our hearts. And so, so what do we do with this space? Like, how do we even think about this possession? Like, does this church, this building exist just for the benefit of CTK? Or can we use even this building, even the carpet and the, the stone and the brick, we can use this space not just for our blessing, but for the blessings of others, right? I mean, many of you have heard me say this to you individually offline, that that we do not have this building so that we would serve the building, but so that the building would serve us, so that we would be a blessing to others. 
right? The purpose isn't so that it would be pristine and perfect and everything always in its right place, but, but that we would use it so that others would know the grace of our Lord. I mean, we, we have this beautiful building because of the generosity of us and of the Lord. And so we can be generous with others. I don't know what this is going to mean individually. I think this is one way it's going to look corporately. But I do know this. That friends, the one who created all things and the one who holds all things together and the one who is the owner of all things, that if there was ever one who deserved to indulge himself in luxury, it was Jesus. And yet, he left the luxury of heaven And he came to earth to generously give of himself so that we would not be given over to the perils of greed, but that we would be those who have found pleasure in his generosity and likewise we would be generous ourselves. And so let us today and tomorrow ask the Lord, Lord, make us more generous. Teach us not to cling to the things of this world. Open our hands so we would not grip money and wealth, but instead let us see all that you have given us as an opportunity to bless others. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would do this, that you would work in our hearts, and that we would see that all that we have is a gift from you. You taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And Father, you have given us more than our daily bread. And so let us have thankful hearts. Let us be filled with spirits. Let our spirits be filled with gratitude at all that you have done, that you, Lord Jesus, you left the riches of heaven. And by your poverty, you made us rich. So let us respond with generous hearts and generous lives so that we would be a blessing to each other and to others. And we pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and God's people said, Amen. I invite our ushers to come forward, and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings.